Hi, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Monsters. I'm Mike. I'm Allison. And in today's episode, we wanted to continue our series on deranged families. We wanted to talk about the 1972 cult classic, Last House on the Left, directed by Wes Craven. Now, this movie is definitely the movie that put him on the map. I mean, this is, you know, when you think of, you know, some of the scarier movies from the 1970s, you know, this one's always on the list. And at one time, this movie was really considered to be like the scariest movie ever made. I mean, when I was a little kid, yeah, I think this movie came out when I was seven. Of course, I didn't see it until I was a teenager. But I remember people telling me, you know, that it was this movie and like The Exorcist <laughs> were like the two. Yeah, the most disturbing Yeah, films. they were like, those are like the two scariest movies. And some people put Night of the Living Dead in there. I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was about 10, maybe nine or 10. And, and it was pretty scary, you know, first time I saw it. But uh, I didn't get around to seeing this film until I was probably closer to maybe 13 or 14. So that would have been the late 70s. It would have been out already for, you know, six or seven years by then. I just didn't, you know, I never thought it was scary, but it is a disturbing film. It's a very disturbing movie. And um, it has that aesthetic to it that was very popular. I mentioned this before. I like to call these movies docudramas. I think we mentioned this when we talked about... Uh, Texas, Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, Texas yeah. Chainsaw. How it starts off with, you know, this is based on a true story and the yeah. soundtracks and the scores are very minimal. Uh, there's just not a lot of music, you know, you know, mood music. There's songs in it. In yeah, they use some ironic soundtracks. Yeah, there's <laughs> songs, but it's not like what you start to see later on. And of course... Before this, too, where, you know, music is used to set a mood, like like if, I think the classic is Hitchcock um, with Psycho and how the music in Psycho was really orchestrated. You know, the classic scene is the... Nah, nah, yeah, nah, this, the, and, uh, the timeless classic. <laughs> yeah, to sort of, you know, make the movie more intense. These movies just didn't have those kinds of budgets, you know, I mean, that, that Hitchcock enjoyed. These are very low budget films and it adds to the creepiness, you know, it, it, that sort of homemade, you know, I don't know what millimeter film they used, but, you know, the film's pretty grainy, you know, I'm, it's probably 16 millimeter, you know, I can't imagine it being eight, but uh, <laughs> these movies definitely had a, you know, sort of a homemade quality to them. I hadn't seen this film in a really long time and I just rewatched it again the other night and the first thing that jumped out at me was the film is a product of its time like it was made in 72 so it definitely has elements of late 60s into early 70s but in a lot of other ways it's kind of not really true to its time certain aspects of this film remind me more of like a 40s film almost like a, you know more of a wholesome America that probably never really existed. But when I think of like film noir, when I think of, you know, some of the more gritty films from the 40s uh, or even into the early 50s, this film has those qualities with the difference being that, of course, those earlier films would cut away. If a violent scene would happen, they would figure out a way to get around it so it wouldn't be graphic. The whole point of this film, especially the way they marketed it at the time, was that the whole point was to show the graphic nature of these crimes. And these are some pretty serious crimes that are, you know, going to happen in this movie. And the whole point is to sort of show it on camera. And this is very consistent with the whole docudrama aspect of the 
movies of this time. Uh, Romero, George Romero said uh, once in an interview, he said, is it sort of the thing that put him on the map and made him a, a director that other people wanted to emulate was the fact that he sort of went against this unsaid rule that uh, even someone like Hitchcock obeyed where, you know, you cut away or, or you get, you, you try to figure out very clever ways of conveying the fact that someone's being stabbed to death. You show a shadow and then you show blood going down the drain as opposed to just showing the knife going to the chest. And in this interview, Romero says, well, I just wanted to show the knife going the chest. That was the whole thing that he was into. He said, you know, there was a time where you couldn't say fuck or you couldn't say shit. And he's like, well, I just, I wanted to make movies where you could do that. <laughs> he just said, you know, I wanted, he wanted to push those envelopes. And in so doing, he created a genre of horror that, you know, we still have today, you know, gore, gore films, you know, slasher films, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And as you've told me many times, once people saw like, you know, Vietnam War footage on TV, then the, you know, the censorship kind of seemed like stupid, you know? Yeah, and even in those days, I mean, I remember watching footage, you know, in the evening news from Vietnam. And even in those days, they didn't, you know, they didn't just show you an arm lying on the battlefield. I mean, they, <laughs> you know, they understood that, you know, there's certain things they didn't want the American public to see. But in context, you could see that, oh, things aren't going well over there. You know, this is like a pretty bad scene, you know? So, but yeah, it definitely uh, desensitized us to graphic violence and gore. And that's more or less what this film does, is it, it brings the violence right you know, graphically right there in front of your eyes. So it's kind of this weird combo of there, there are many scenes in this movie that just seem kind of wholesome and innocent, not even so much from the writing or the character standpoint, but just like sort of naive, like the way that the film is sort of put together. It's just a weird sort of film. And I mean, maybe one way of interpreting it is just to say, maybe it's just not that good of a movie. You know, maybe it's like those are some of the elements that like make a good movie versus, I mean, it's hard for me to believe, but this movie was made the same year as The Godfather. And of course, that's a masterpiece that has stood the test of time. And people are still trying to emulate that film. So Yeah, but people are still emulating Last House on the Left. Too. Exactly, right. And, and yeah, and yeah, it's a different genre. And, and in many ways, yeah, it's Last House on the Left was sort of the, it set that gold standard, like that high, high mark, you know. Yeah, that, I mean, just this week, the new Saw movie came out. I would say that owes something to Last House on the Left. All these torture movies owe something to movies like that. There's like a whole thing like online now to be like, oh, how many of the most disturbing movies have you seen, you know? And then there's like lists of them that people can try to accomplish. And there's like whole channels on YouTube that like only review disturbing movies and stuff. And so it's like an entire thing now. And yeah, most of them have their roots like in the seventies and stuff. Yeah, I would definitely like this whole series that we're doing is really inspired by Spider Baby, which in my opinion is really the film that started these kinds of movies, these sort of low budget deranged family serial killer kind of movies, you know? So, and that, you know, that's why that movie, I think, is in a lot of ways the most important one. You know, it, it might not be the best movie and it probably doesn't push the envelope as far as like Last House on the Left. But I think without Spider-Baby, you don't have a lot of these other films. I think that's the movie that sort of started it all. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention about Last House on the Left is... Of course, this film was inspired by, or we could say based on, an earlier film from uh, 1960 called uh, Virgin Spring. And that movie, you know, being a, a very esoteric European film, winds up winning an Oscar. It's in that higher level of like, oh, that's like that's quality filmmaking, which is so funny because Last House on the Last House on the Left <laughs> is certainly not any of those things. But yet, it's really the same story. It's it's uh, basically using the same template, and the Virgin Spring. Is 
is based on an old Swedish ballad from the 1300s. Yeah, that, it goes way back. <laughs> yeah, that's basically uh, Tor's Daughters of, of Vanga, which is a an old folk tale that explains why this particular church was built in this certain area. And the story is, you know, it's one of those sort of uh, Macbeth, you know, sort of like this, the fates sort of having fun. And the story basically goes that this husband and wife had three sons and they felt like the sons needed to learn how to grow up. And so at a very young age, they kicked the sons out of the house and they basically just said, you guys just need to survive on your own. And so the sons went off into the woods and they were able to survive and the parents sort of lost track of them and didn't even know if they were still alive anymore. And then they wound up having three daughters. And of course, daughters, they, you know, were going to keep them until marriage, you know, and, and, and of course- That shows you like the, you know, the culture and all that. Oh, this is the 1300s. <laughs> yeah, I mean. yeah. <laughs> and so, so there's lots of religion in this story and the daughters are on their way to church and they're not escorted and they wind up running across these three men. They're like highway robbers or highway thieves. And the men basically want to have them as their brides and they basically give them an, an ultimatum. An ultimatum, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the choice is, you know, either marry us or we're going to kill you. And they decide. Yeah, so what a choice. <laughs> yeah. So they decide to die and uh, the highway men wind up for some reason cutting their heads off. And where they were killed, a spring, a spring start to, uh, what's the word when a spring emerges? Um, or, it springs up. <laughs> spring springs. Um, so it's sort of answering the question as to like, you know, why is there water here? What's the source of this spring? So the highway men wind up taking the clothes from the girls that, that are now deceased and they wind up going back to the house or to the farm or the cottage of the parents. And when the mom recognizes the clothes, she concludes that these people must have killed their daughters. So his daughters are missing. And so the father in a rage, you know, which is this is sort of the moral of the story, because if he's a Christian, he's supposed to forgive them. But he's so angry that he winds up killing two of them. And he spares the third one only to ask questions. And he asks him, you know, who are you and all this other stuff. And so the one surviving man says, well, we're the sons of Tor and Karina. I think that was her name or something like that. And they realize that it's their sons who murdered their own daughters. Yeah, because they didn't want to take care of their sons. Right. So that's like, <laughs> see, that's a little different because so, it was their but, fault in the first place. Right. But to atone for their his sin, the sin of for murdering his own sons, he, um, of course, and at the end, he's has no daughters or sons. Um, he <laughs> builds a church and that sort of explains, you know, the springs and the church. And that's the way this ballad functioned yeah. for many hundreds <laughs> of years until Igmar Bergman came along and made a movie. And the main thing that he changed, or I would say didn't change, but he added to it was the concept of rape. And it's only one daughter. It's much more religiously motivated. There's lots of references to paganism. There's a housekeeper who escorts the daughter who's on her way to bring candles or something to the church. And she's a pagan worshiper. And there's a huge contrast between her and the daughter who is supposed to be pure. And she's associated with white and, and very Anglo and blonde and blue eyed. And then the other girl is sort of dark hair and she's kind of dirty. And I, I think she's already pregnant out of wedlock or something. So she's <laughs> all the stereotypes. And, all the stereotypes. And similar she, to Last yeah. House on the Left that also right. has all the stereotypes. Right, exactly. And we're going to get to that. <laughs> and so it's, it's, I think it's interesting to talk 
talk about these movies because this knowledge then at Last House on the Left winds up, you know, making a lot more sense. I mean, not that it, you can totally watch a movie by itself and it's fine. You don't need to know all these details, but it definitely enriches uh, the movie when you know sort of where the Wes Craven got these ideas from. And so the idea, the same, it's got the same message in the end. Uh, Max von Sydow, is, he's the father yeah. and he winds up murdering the two of the men who hurt his daughter. And once again, the whole message there, well, if he was a good Christian, he would have forgiven them, but of course he can't. And so he builds a church to atone for his sins. And um, that's more or less the message in that movie. I, I have seen the movie and it is a very good movie. I do recommend it. But uh, coming to Last House on the Left, there's a lot to talk about with these characters. Obviously, we have the young maiden. Her character's name is Mary, right? Although oh, she's- Mari. <laughs> yeah, so it's that Mary <laughs> Mari thing. Yeah, so it's M-A-R-I, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so she's 17 years old and- It's her birthday. And it's her birthday, right? <laughs> and um, and she's going to a rock concert to go see a band called Bloodlust, which is sort of yeah. like foreshadowing like <laughs> what's going to happen. And her, her friend, Phyllis, is, you know, I, I you get the impression she's a little bit older. Maybe she's like 20 or something. You know, Maybe. It, she seems a little bit more experienced. Well, the main thing is that she says she's from a bad neighborhood. Right. But when 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 she meets the parents of Mari, is that, are you sure it's Mari? Oh, it's I Mary. think so. Anyway, um, when she meets her, she goes to pick her up and then she meets her uh, Mari's parents. They ask her, well, what do your parents do? And she says, what does she say? My mom? She says, my parents are in iron and steel. Yeah, and iron and like, steel. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. And she's like, yeah, my mom irons and my dad steals. Right. <laughs> so that's the, yeah, that's how you get, that's all you really get from her background is that, okay, she's from the other side of the tracks, but she still comes off as a, you know, a good kid. It's not like the people that they're going to run into. Now, the father of Mari is obviously World War II veteran, um, and you get the impression that he's a bit older than uh, even Mari's mom. There, there, there's got to be at least 10 years between them, maybe 15. And this is important because uh, I want to talk a, a bit about generations and social classes, which is something that we touched on a little bit in our analysis of the werewolf movie. But this is a different kind of social class distinction because this is modern America, 20th century America, post-World War II kind of stuff. And these characters are like fully immersed. These are total archetypes. You know, these are definitely, you know, the father is handpicked to be the stereotypical older dad who married a younger woman. He waited to get married, waited to have a kid. He's totally World War II guy. So you got him. You got the um, the mom who's probably born in the 30s, you know, and she's just a good housewife. And so when we talk about generations, we say there's the World War II generation, and then there's what's called the silent generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the generation of the mad. I call I like to call them the Mad Men generation. This is when you watch that show Mad Men. Most of the most of the people in that show are from this generation, which is called the silent generation, which is the generation that existed between the World War II generation and the baby boomers who came, you know, the the baby boomers were the children of the World War II generation primarily. And so Mari is a boomer. She's your typical hippie. She's a little bit young to be a hippie. You know, if she's 17 and if she's 17 and 72, that means she was born in 55, right? So she's sort of tail end of the hippies, right? Well, I just wanted to mention all the stereotypes because the way that each character is introduced, like there's like no, I mean, I don't know. This is the thing. I don't know if it it was considered more nuanced when the movie came out. But by today's standards, there's like zero nuance. They live in this middle class house. They're like out in the woods. And that's important because that's why they can't get help ultimately. But they live like this very innocent existence. And like she's into hippie stuff. But like she has like, you know, Janice Joplin on the walls. And she's talking about like, 
you know, women's lib and she has beads and all that stuff, but she's not like a hippie. Like she's living the middle class lifestyle, you know? Um, well, many of the hippies were just middle class kids. Yeah, but I'm just saying it's like, I don't know. I feel like it's an important distinction to say like, this is not like a easy rider, like one of the girls from easy rider. Like she's like very American dream, like you were saying. And anyways, the point is, the way that they're introduced, like, yeah, she's going to this show. She, the way she acts is like she's never thought that there could ever be any danger at all. And, like, she's wearing this super conservative, like, by today's standards outfit, like, pants and long sleeves. And her dad's, like, the first thing he says is, like, why aren't you wearing a bra? She's like, I don't need a bra. That's old school. And the mom is like, oh, how could you talk to your father that way or something? And then... They're like, oh, you're not going to that bad neighborhood, are you? And, you know, it just follows like that. So it was just like extremely stereotypical. That's, a, you know, that's a helpful analysis or, or observation. But the other thing I would add to that is that the father is definitely, you know, he definitely, because that's the thing. I mean, I had an older father. And when you have an older parent who's more or less skipped the generation, there's it could be more like a grandparent as opposed to a parent. The mom is straight up parent. Like you said, I mean, she's definitely like, don't talk to your father that way. You know, you could tell that their relationship is much more of your stereotypical mother-daughter relationship. But with the dad, you get the sense that the dad is more hip. It, you would think that wouldn't be the case, right? Because <laughs> he's from an older generation and stuff. But a lot of these guys from World War II, you know, they had been through a lot of stuff. They had seen a lot of stuff. And he winds up giving his daughter a peace sign. So you would think like, well, if they're so conservative, they'd be against the peace movement. Oh, but, yeah, but no, they let but, her do, they but, let her be into it. Right, she so wants. they're actually cool parents. They yeah. trust her. There's definitely conservative aspect to their family. But the father seems to be like, you know, he's, he's understanding. Like, he's like, oh, just let her, you know, you, you'll see. Just give her some freedom and, you know, that kind of stuff. So the dad is actually really cool yeah. in that sense. When she winds up missing the next day, he's not even panicking. Yeah, he's, he's he's the first one to say, like, three times, like, oh, she's just having fun. Like, even though, like, yeah, he was telling her basically, like, oh, you're really going to go see that band? Like, you know, you're going to do all that, but... After she leaves, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, she's 17 now. Like, you got to yeah. let her do what she's going to do, you know, yeah. so. Right. And then the criminals, and we get into the criminals. This is when I said, you know, this movie has, like, elements of the 40s. I think I was mainly thinking about them, that these aren't the kinds of criminals that when you think of that time, of course, the first person you're going to think of is Charles Manson. And I do believe that the main sort of mean guy, Krug or whatever his name is. Yeah, he gets a uh, caveman name. So yeah. that'd tell you something right there. <laughs> he, he definitely has sort of some Manson qualities, but it, it's not really like those characters are, those villains are such a throwback. I mean, they're really like, like I said, they're, especially the guy Weasel. I mean, he's straight out of 1940s film noir sort of thing. He's got a switchblade and and it's just sort of like okay that it just kind of makes the movie sort of less believable in a way <laughs> you know because you would think that that they would make the villains less stereotypical they would make they would go more for like realism but no but they're they're all stereotypical <laughs> yeah and i think i you know looking at it now and you know watching it the other night, I'm like, yeah, okay, well, that's intentional. Like, they, there's definitely, you know, a point trying to be made there. Uh, going back to generations, I do believe that there's a generation battle going on here. I think that's part of what Wes Craven is trying to convey in the film, is that, much like the way Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson does in his Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas series, uh, how he differentiates between the hippie movement and the Hells Angels, and then where he is. 
right? And then also the World War II guys. Like all of these generations were coexisting and they all were kind of competing for certain things and they were approaching certain things in society a, a different way. And a typical person in the middle in middle class America would think that, like you even referenced like uh, Easy Rider. Yeah. They would think that guys that ride motorcycles are basically hippies, but that's not. That's a completely different subculture. Um, Hell's Angels are not, if anything, they're closer to fascists, you know? Whereas you could say hippies are closer to communists or socialists. So it's a completely different thing. To understand that kind of stuff is really helps to sort of get more out of this movie. I do believe that Wes Craven was creating these stereotypical characters to be vehicles for these social classes and these different generations. Each character has a counterpart. So the main villain, Krug, is the counterpart to the father. Yeah, they all basically fight based on their pair up at the end. Yeah, each one is paired up. And the mom is roughly, if you think about it, being a younger bride, younger than the- bride. (laughs) A younger wife to the father. Uh, She's roughly the same age as Weasel. It's the mother and Weasel. It's Krug, who's the main villain with the father. And then it's uh, the young, the woman who's only a little bit older than the two teenage girls. She's uh, the other villain, the third villain, and she's the counterpart to Phyllis, which is the, f- the friend oh, the friend, yeah. the friend that Mari <laughs> goes out with. And then Mari has a counterpart in Krug's son. Yeah, what's that kid's name again? I can't remember. They just call him Junior and stuff. But, yeah. But he um, he's a heroin addict, and he's, he's addicted to heroin because his father got him hooked on heroin, and they say because it, it makes him easier to manipulate Yeah, this is son. literally what they say on the radio. Like, yeah, right. in, this, this is part of, this is what, what I'm saying with like the lack of nuance, like the radio says it pretty much in those exact same words. Well, that's what I was saying, that, that, that the movie is somewhat naive. That's what I mean by having that 1940s quality. It's just the writing is kind of, it's just, it, it's out of a different era. It's not 1972. It's it, like I said, it's more like 1947. Yeah. You know? Well, that's why when I watched it, I felt like, yeah, it just kind of has this weird vibe about it, which I'm not sure if that's because we're, you know, we're removed from the movie. Like, I don't know how the movie would have been received like when it came out, like I said earlier. But watching it today, I'm like, this feels like a PSA. This feels like a PragerU like video. You know what I mean? Like, cause it has that, it has that vibe of like unreality about it where it's just like, okay, you're making a point so, so thickly, <laughs> right? you know? Yeah. I mean, and going back to this generation thing. Um, so we talk about like Mari, the youngest, the, the you know, the maiden and how she, her counterpart is the son who's the, the heroin addict. And they're roughly the same age. There's no reason why that son couldn't be a hippie, a, you know, um, flower child, a flower child. Yeah. <laughs> and she, get, she gives him a hippie name. She gives, yeah, she, she calls to, him Willow. Yeah. When she's <laughs> trying to make him, yeah. him help her. Right. And so what's the difference between them? The difference is now we're into the social classes. The difference is that Mari grew up in an upper middle class household. She had nurturing, right? So she, she certain things that uh, she had that he didn't have and he had no choice. So yeah. he's just the product of society. I mean, it's something yeah. that Charles Manson used to say when he was interviewed, they would say, you know, how did you get to be the way you are? And he said, you made me. He said, <laughs> you made me what I am. And when he says you, he's talking about society. And, you know, he's not wrong, you know? He, you know, he grew up, he, he just got, he was, Dealt a crappy hand. Now it doesn't mean you have to go out and murder people, but <laughs> but you know there's no denying that you know he 
he didn't he didn't have those advantages that a character like Mari has. Yeah, you if see? he had a nice mom, he might not have been out starting cults and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have a statement on social class, not so much a difference in generations. Uh, Phyllis and uh, what is the um, her name is Sadie. Now Sadie. Yeah, see that name comes straight from the Manson. That's family. straight from the Manson, right? Because yeah. Susan Atkins, her nickname was Sexy Sadie, which is a reference to the Beatles song. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so her her nickname was Sadie, and she was one of the main murderers in the Manson in, in the Tate LaBianca murders. And so they they say, okay, let's call her Sadie. So Sadie <laughs> is, you know, maybe she's a little bit older than Phyllis and and Mari, or, or if we want to say Phyllis is a little bit older than Mari, then maybe uh, Sadie and Phyllis are the same age. Uh, you have one character who says she grew up in a bad neighborhood and maybe didn't have as much nurturing, but chose to hang out with the hippie movement, right? So she chose, as a baby boomer, she chose, okay, this, these are my people, you know, Woodstock and all that other stuff. Yeah. Whereas with Sadie, she probably started hanging out with older men when she was a teenager. So she already got indoctrinated into hanging out with an older generation, and so therefore, even though she's younger, she kind of abandoned the whole movement of her generation. And she sort of grew up, you know, like yeah, a lot she'd of kids. Be in do. like the greaser crowd or something. Yeah, or she is. She is. She's totally it. she's a total yeah. greaser. She owes much more to the 50s, 40s, and 50s than she does to her own to her own generation. And then you get Weasel, and I mean, he is just straight up like silent generation. I mean, you could just see him in like on the waterfront or something like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like some, With his suit and everything. Yeah, or like Blackboard Jungle. You know, these these movies about, you know, teenage criminals in the 1950s, you know. And um, and so, yeah, so he's the counterpart to the mom. And the mom, of course, she was lucky and she probably came from a good family. And then she got married and, you know, she married a nice, respectable older man. and Who... who- had like a good war career, like yeah, a military career. Exactly. And whereas Weasel <laughs> is probably just, he's more like your Charles Manson kind of guy. You know, he's like in and out of prisons and things like that. And, um, and you know, they represent this generation that, you know, a lot of people don't really talk about a lot unless you've seen Mad Men, which, you know, that <laughs> sort of celebrates that generation. Um, this generation didn't really have... They didn't have a war to really call their own, you know, like the World War II generation. And they didn't really have like a huge movement like the baby boomers did, like with the counterculture movement, Vietnam War and the 60s and all of that stuff. So uh, that's why they're called the silent generation is, is mainly because they didn't really have much to identify themselves with. And then they didn't complain about it. So they're sort of considered to be like a good, hardworking, you know, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> no personality. Yeah. But yeah, when you start to do like a lot of research into American crime, you start to realize that there were a lot of serial killers that came from that generation. (laughs) You know, a lot of them were born in the 30s. Well, they probably learned how to just blend in with everybody else, which you need to be a successful serial killer. And then, yeah. Yeah. You know. (laughs) And then the crude guy, I mean, I'm assuming he's roughly the same age, probably born in the 30s. So he's another silent generation guy. And, uh, and, you know, his counterpart, of course, is the dad. And that's mainly because they're supposed to be the alphas of their clans. You know? <laughs> we talk about the reason why we did this series is because we talk about deranged families. You can't really say that there's any deranged family. I mean, Krug's group of criminals are deranged. Yeah, they're family. Um, and they're, yeah, they're, they're kind of like a family. But I like to extend it outward and say that the, what's... What this movie is really trying to say is that American society as a family is deranged. That somehow by the early 70s, the the American dream, the white picket fence and all that stuff, you know, 
the Horatio Alger, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, is all kind of a myth. And you get what you get. You know, you, you play the hand you've been dealt. You know, if, if you're lucky enough to have a nurturing family, to be middle class, okay, then you might wind up like Mari in that family. Otherwise, you're probably going to be a criminal or, you know, you're, you know what I mean? It's, you're going to have a much harder life. And I really think that's more or less the message of the movie, along with the violence. And so we get to the violence of... Uh, you know, we we don't really need to highlight all of the horrible things that happen to these two girls. But going back to the Virgin Spring, you know, uh, Wes Craven makes sure that, you know, you've got your rape scenes and you've got, you know, then you've got your murder. No one's head gets chopped off. But, but, <laughs> but uh, they do get stabbed and they do get, um, you know, just beat up and stuff like that. Yeah. And they do and they use psychological torture, which is pretty heavy for the time. Yeah. You know, because all the, like, rape and stuff, they don't, like, really show it. But the stuff that they say to them and that they, like, make them do, it's like, well, yeah, you can't hide that because they're saying it, you know? So, yeah, I would imagine that was pretty shocking when it came out. It's it's like the Texas, that scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre where I said, you know, surprisingly, Texas Chainsaw is not very gory. But that scene at the dinner table where they're just making fun of her and they're making those faces at her, that that's, that's a very old, like deep psychological trauma kind of thing, you know, like, and there's a lot of that in this movie, in, in Last House on the Left, just, you know, a bigger, stronger person or, the, you know, the, the one who's holding the knife or the one who's holding the gun yeah. just says, do this or else. Yeah, it's just like about sadism. And the ironic thing is that the very first, because they show the criminals at first, like without anybody else around and they're saying how they, you know the radio is saying like oh they broke out of jail and stuff and they're saying like we better not do anything bad like right away because we don't want to go <laughs> right back to jail and then the second they get these two like innocent people in their apartment they just immediately like go straight to like the torturing so right. it's just like okay you guys <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's <laughs> It's, yeah, maybe some of that is because maybe the writing just isn't all that good. Maybe some of the editing. You got to remember, this is a low-budget film. No, but I think it, I don't know. I think, think it's, um, I mean, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I think it goes to a certain aesthetic where it's like, yeah, they're driving in the car. The two girls are in the trunk, and then they're saying, like, we better not do anything bad because we'll go back to jail. It's like, I don't know, I feel like it just gives it, like, it, interesting vibe. Well, it, there there are scenes in this movie that are meant to be kind of sickly funny, you yeah. know, just just uh, dark humor, you yeah. know. Yeah, or maybe it goes to what you were just saying about how, like, they can't help themselves because that's the lot that they're inhabiting. Yeah, they don't even, they've, they're they beyond even knowing the difference, really, at the end of the day. <laughs> and, you know, they don't have contrition, you know, or anything, you know, and, that, and that's, you know, that's the mark of a true serial killer or, you know, people like that, you know, they're they're psychotic, you know. And this movie does pull that off. <laughs> at least, you know, despite some of the other goofy things. It's it's silly. The, the, the plot is, 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 talk about suspension of disbelief. You really need to have that because they're in New York City. Which Are is, they? Yeah. They're in New York City. Oh, yeah, they do talk about going to Manhattan at a certain point. They're in Manhattan. Now, I used to live in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, going over the bridges, if you go to the Jersey side or whatever, um, you know, there's lots of wooded areas over there. You know, you can get into a rural area pretty quickly. Okay, yeah, but, but that's not New York City anymore. But the but the chances of them, like the chances of somebody leaving New York City with all the millions of people there mm -hmm. and driving out 
and then stopping literally in front of the house of the girl <laughs> who they're murdering is like those odds are just astronomical. So it's silly. It's just it's a silly plot device. And it's just a corner that they cut mm. because they needed to explain why after the girls are murdered, spoiler alert, that, that <laughs> like the, why do they wind up why the house? criminals wind up and why it's the last <laughs> house on the left, which is the last house down that street, which mm. is in like a very suburban area. And instead of, you know, which makes more sense in the in the Swedish stories is that, you know, there's only one cottage like in that whole area. And so they're going down this trail. Yeah. And obviously they're going in the opposite direction of where the girls came from or where the in the Bergman film where the daughter's coming from so if they're going in the reverse direction they're going to come they're going to stumble across that village or that it's not even a village it's a cottage yeah and it's going to be the only house that can offer you know any sort of hospitality for miles right yeah. so that was already built into the story and then the fact that they had the clothes you know they had some sort of something from the daughter that the parents would know okay that's from my daughter yeah now, which they preserve house, in this movie right they did preserve that <laughs> in this movie with the peace sign because yeah. the father gave the daughter the necklace and then the mother noticed that one of them who's wearing the necklace it's, um, it's it Willow was, yeah the yeah. Willow quote unquote the yeah, son the son he's wearing the necklace so she knows right there something's wrong yeah and then she finds all their bloody clothes in their suitcase so, right you know <laughs> right so that part of the story is preserved pretty well but they could there was no way they could I mean the only way that they could have kept that other part and had it been a little bit more believable would have been if the concert was down the street from the girl <laughs> and then they got into trouble and then it would be more logical that you know on the way back maybe the car would be close to their house. Yeah. But for them to be in New York City and then to come back and like of all places wind up there. I guess that's just part of the irony of the story, but nonetheless that's what happens and then the parents uh proceed to get revenge on them. Yeah, but first it's I just think it's wild how like welcoming the parents are before they know they're killers. But you know, it's once again at that point suspension of disbelief. You're just okay, let's just let it go. It doesn't uh -huh. matter. I mean, let's just see what happens, you know. They, <laughs> <laughs> they they wandered into these people's house. Now let's just see, you know, what sort of revenge the parents take out on them. Yeah, but I think it's important because this is a debate that's like goes on to this day where people it's kind of like a t tug and pull where it's like on one hand, people are like, oh, man, wouldn't it be like so awesome if we could like have that society again where like your door is just open and like everybody's your friend and you just support other people even if you don't know them but then the flip side is like okay well what if they're like these people you know so it's still a debate you know it's still a big debate that people are always talking about anyway to wrap this up and talk about more or less how the parents get revenge i mean without without getting too detailed <laughs> um i i think it's important to mention that the father of course winds up fighting Krug, the main uh, villain. I mean, yeah, after booby trapping the house. Yeah, he booby traps the house, and <laughs> he. Uh, but Krug has the better of him. Krug's the better yeah, fighter. Yeah, he still kicks his ass. Yeah, man. he he still pretty much would have done away with the dad, except for and this. I think this is one of the better parts about this film is that Krug has to atone for how he treated his son. You know, this is one of those moments where karma matters, you know, where uh, how you, you know, the things that you did leading up to this moment can either help you win or hurt you. And in this instance, the son, who's never really part of, he's does not, he's just a heroin addict. He does not, doesn't get off on the things that they get off on. He's he's not into the violence. He doesn't hurt any of the girls. Yeah, you get the idea, like, he'll want to be good. He really, he really would have been a hippie 
<laughs> if he had a different parent, you know, he, yeah. he really would have been part of his generation, unlike Sadie's character who just rejected her own generation um, and, and gravitated towards these these crazy guys. Yeah, well, maybe and, she just fell away from the hippies. You never know, it, like you're saying. Right, but, you know, we can assume. Uh, but but nonetheless, the son comes in and he's got the gun and, and right when Krug is about to do away with the with the father he shoots at uh the son shoots at Krug and you know in an attempt to hurt him or wound him and he misses and then Krug is able to basically use mind control yeah. on his own son he tells him <laughs> he basically tells him that you know you're a piece of shit and he says if you want to shoot me go ahead he's not afraid um and he just and of course the kid can't you know his hands shaking and and he's like yeah i knew you're, you're you aren't worth anything and then he tells him to stick the gun in his own mouth and blow his brains out and he does and he does i couldn't believe that i was just like are you kidding me <laughs> that worked so, you know? well but if you think about it on a deeper level you know, the, the son's probably looking for any excuse to just get out of the situation I he's guess, in. I guess, if that's he's how not, you want to look he's at He's not it. happy and he's not, you know, <laughs> he knows his life is going nowhere. And especially after these crimes, he's probably going to spend many, many years in jail. So it's it's not actually, of all the things in this movie that are far-fetched, that one's not so far-fetched. I don't know about that. To me, that's the only thing that had my jaw on the floor. Like, what the fuck are we doing here, you know? <laughs> well, I just think if you think of the psychology and the, of the relationship. But nonetheless, it the purpose it serves on a more practical level is that it gives the father time to get away. Yeah. Because he would have been killed otherwise. And he goes down in the basement and he gets a chainsaw. Now, let's keep in mind that this movie came out before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And this is really the first time in a in a horror slasher film that you see someone using a chainsaw to to attack someone. So we got to say that maybe Toby Hooper uh, might have gotten his idea <laughs> for Texas Chainsaw from Last House on the Left. I've never seen an interview where he's admitted that, but yeah, who knows? but there's a really good good chance. And I, I wonder if Wes Craven. I think all these guys are dead now, but if Wes Craven ever said in an interview that he felt like. Uh, Toby Hooper might have ripped him off or something with that idea. Yeah, hard to know. But anyway, the father does do away with Krug with the with the chainsaw, and the cops show up and they're like, "What the hell?" You know, and, and then of yeah, course, yeah. Well, the, at the very kind of like what you were saying, at the very last second, the cop tries to intervene and be like, "Don't kill him," but and dad is like, "You know, he's got to kill him now." Yeah. The other thing I think is really interesting, going back to the generations and uh, you know the different difference in social classes and sort of like the role that uh, that the mom plays. Uh, the mom is, is a much more serious, you know, uh, she's, she's much more vindictive, you know. Is she? She seduces Weasel, yeah. right? And she proceeds to perform a certain sexual act on him, right? And, <laughs> and he, to. And, well, she <laughs> well. does at first and, <laughs> and she goes through with it because she's just like, at this point, she just wants revenge. Yeah, I know. And, I, I was kind of surprised by how much, because she, she just saw her dead daughter and she knows these people did it and yet she can put aside all her feelings. And it's interesting how they chose to make the way that she gets him is, you know, by biting a certain thing. And um, and it's assumed that he just dies yeah, or something, from, from that wound. <laughs> um, and, and then she picks up his switchblade and she winds up cutting the throat of Sadie. So yeah. she winds up killing two of them. And I 
I've, I remember seeing this, you know, years ago when I was younger and thinking like, God, oh, there's, there's definitely a message in there some somewhere where she is taking away the manhood of a guy who's roughly the same age as her, who could have been her husband. And then she's slitting the throat of a girl who's old enough or young enough to have been her daughter. So it's almost like in an alternate universe, that could have been her family. I guess. I don't and, know. But, you know, it's like and, when it comes to rapists, it's like taking away the manhood of a man is like the ultimate woman's fantasy to punish a rapist. Sure, know? sure. But I'm just saying there's there might even be more to it than that. That's another thing about this movie is that there's lots of cuts of it. So there were lots of different edits mm-hmm. and some whole scenes were taken out oh, and and there's a little bit of, it, the movie doesn't flow well, let's just put it that way. <laughs> there's a little bit of, you know, there's a few bumps along the way. And uh, one of the scenes that in the sort of the, the basic generic cut now, I mean, you'd have to get like a DVD with all of the all of the missing scenes and stuff if you really wanted to get the full picture. I think there is a DVD out there that, that they really made an effort to sort of try to get every little, you know, piece of footage and include it all in one DVD. But uh, but in the standard cut, the one that I saw the other night, the scene is the parents run back to the lake and the daughter has gotten out of the lake. Yeah, but and she was already dead. No. What do you mean? No, she... she the, she says, she confirms that it's them who killed her, who did that. Is that to what her. happened? Yeah, and then she dies. Oh, I thought she was just laying on the shore, and it was implied that the criminals like dragged her ashore or something. No. And then the dad is like, she's dead. Yeah, he says she's dead, but right before that, she she says she confirms that they were the ones who who did that. Oh, I I didn't catch that part. <laughs> so that there wouldn't. So that in case I don't know why that scene was included, but maybe it was in case people were saying, well, they you know they could have just gotten a peace sign, or it could have been a different peace sign, and then they just murdered these people, <laughs> just assuming that they killed. So they needed to have a little bit more of a confirmation to justify what the parents were going to do. Yeah, nowadays yes. you wouldn't need that, but I, that shows you something, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, things have changed since 1972. <laughs> anyway, that's our take on this film. Um, we. We are going to have another episode on uh, Rob Zombie's trilogy mm. uh, with The Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses and a little bit of Sid Haig uh, thrown in, you know, some extra information on him. So that's coming in the future. I don't know if that's going to be our next episode, but we haven't forgotten about our deranged family series and, <laughs> and we promised that would be the last episode of this series. So we'll do that then. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave us five stars and a review. Thanks.